You're listening to Now I've Heard Everything. Conversations with the icons of our time. In those days, in the aftermath of the assassination of the president, it was big, it was huge, it was giant. I mean, there wasn't anything mega like it before, but nobody really knew they would become the icons they've become today. Journalist and biographer Larry Kane. Today on Now I've Heard Everything, I'm Bill Thompson. Sixty years ago this week, the Beatles performed a concert. Notable because it was their very first concert in the United States. On February 11, 1964, the Beatles performed for about 8,000 fans at the Washington Coliseum in Washington, D.C. After that concert, as they embarked on their 1964 U.S. tour, along with them was young journalist Larry Kane. In fact, he was the only broadcast journalist who accompanied the Beatles on every stop of both the 64 and 65 tours. Now, Kane has written three books about the Beatles, including his 2014 book called When They Were Boys. So let's take a few minutes now to revisit this milepost in American culture. Here now from 2014, Larry Kane. Brian Epstein said to me in 1964, the Beatles will be around, Larry, and talking and singing to the children of the 21st century, which, of course, was hard to believe. <laughs> how, how old were you in 64? I was 21. All right. Now, you did not get to attend the 64 concert here in D.C. yourself, but you've been told, I mean, obviously, you're traveling with the Beatles. They're telling you, I'm sure, lots of stories about it. Well, there's one very fascinating aspect of the concert that a lot of people don't realize. The most fascinating aspect was that 8,000 people were there. And prior to coming to America for this little mini-arrival, primarily for the Ed Sullivan shows, uh, and this was a hastily arranged concert in Washington, uh, they had never performed before more than four or 500 people at a time at the most, except for the Royal Concert in London. So basically, this crowd, the Washington crowd, was the biggest thing they'd ever seen. And of course, as usual, there wasn't enough security there. They had, they had people from the service trying to help them out. They also had a situation where... Uh, the stage, uh, they had to move around the stage. They didn't have the proper equipment. But nevertheless, when they came to Washington, that was their first gigantic concert of their lives. And uh, it was pretty amazing to them. Now, I, do I understand that they came here largely because of disc jockey Carol James? Well, that's part of the story. Nobody's really confirmed that. But Carol James, as you know, was the person who uh, is said to have played uh, I Want to Hold Your Hand for the first time, uh, way before uh, December 26th. Uh, when it was released to the rest of the world, 1963, and you know it was all about a request from a fan, and uh, his his uh, I think the station was WWDC, mm-hmm. and it was certainly a major major event uh, for the Beatles, although very few people really knew about it nationwide until years later. And I, I like history and the way things fit together in history. We have to keep in mind this was just a few weeks. After we lost an American president, and the country was plunged into a deep period of, of mourning and, and sorrow and despair, and all of a sudden, here comes these four guys, happy-go-lucky, they're smiling, they have happy tunes. How did that transform America? I think it helped America a lot. In, 19, uh, in 2002, when I wrote Ticket to Ride, I talked about that uh, symbiotic relationship there, and most of the uh, self-styled intellectuals of the nation put me down for it. And they said, well, what do you mean? How do you know there was a connection? Well, I know there was a connection because I lived it. And the president's assassination was a very dark, dark time in American history. People were really down, really down emotionally. 
And uh, the Beatles came along, and obviously they weren't designed to, to be a tonic for this, but they certainly were because it took our eyes off of it for a little bit. And uh, although I must say, and I, I want to make this very clear to everybody listening, uh, the Beatles in 1963, 64, 65, on through 1970, were not the Beatles we know today. And by that, I mean that, yes, they were, the first aspect of their, uh, their arrival in, in the world was their fandom, this electric, frenzied women pulling their hair out, of staring so much, thinking each one of them was singing to them, this sense of, uh, of, of camaraderie with them and love and passion. Uh, that was the first part of the Beatles. The second part was the realization that their music was intense, exciting, and varied. And the third part didn't come till many years later in the 1980s when people started putting two and two together and realized they had the greatest collection of music in the history of recorded music. So in, the, in those days, in the, in the aftermath of the assassination of the president, uh, and when I traveled with them extensively, uh, it was big. It was huge. It was giant. I mean, there wasn't anything mega like it before, but nobody really knew they would become the icons they've become today. Well, I gather when you talk about the screaming, le- the legions of screaming girls, I wonder how many people at that Washington concert that night in February of 64 actually heard any of the songs. Well, actually, that was one of the better concerts. And if you look, if you look at some of the bootleg material from that, you can actually see they were being heard because there was a distance between them and the audience from the, from the stand there, the bandstand they set up. Uh, there weren't many places they could be heard, but I figured out a way to do it with my ears. I had to cut my ears a certain way. And uh, I want to tell you something about that. I, was, I attended some of them two or three in one city, 74 Beatles concerts. And I will tell you that they sounded exactly like the record. So basically what I'm saying to you is they were a great band. And they were tight. If you look at Sullivan, the first show of Sullivan was all live, two sets. The second show was live from Miami Beach, which I saw at the Doville Hotel. The third show was recorded in the first show. But two of them were just live. I mean, and you look at that, not doctored, uh, not engineered in any way. And that group was as perfect as you can get. Now, I want to talk about your new book, When They Were Boys. Uh, I gather you hadn't planned on writing a third book about the Beatles? No, actually, uh, my wife was going to probably leave the house if I had a new book. <laughs> uh, but I, <laughs> I, uh, I, n- I never planned it. But then I got really fascinated, and I started to find out something. that There's a lot I didn't know about them, and there was a lot written about them that was dictated by them. It was their story. And the independent story, what really happened to them, was never really told. There are sections of it, they're gigantic books, they're small books, but nobody ever told it in the way that I write. And basically, I found out some uh, unbelievable things. After this short break, Larry Kane tells the very gritty story of the Beatles' very early days. Start your day with Now I've Heard Everything. We post new episodes every Monday, Wednesday and Friday at 5 o'clock a.m. Eastern Time. Subscribe now so you'll have something fresh to listen to and get your day going. Now back to my 2014 conversation with Larry Kane. It was a seven-year march to greatness, not a year or two. Uh, Secondly... Uh, John Lennon's really was the founder, the the heart and soul of the band, and the way he started was a story that you and I could not make up. We could sit there and try to make it up. You couldn't make it up. He, he brings he brings Paul McCartney to the band after his classmates leave the band. He starts. They start working with George Harrison in a uh, coffee house called the Jack Aranda, where they're cleaning bathrooms at night. 
and painting bathrooms and doing anything to get noticed. Uh, they, they do a few little concerts here and there, the most notable of which is backup playing for a woman named Janice the Stripper. That was their first, that was their first cover band <laughs> activity. Uh, they then went to Hamburg with the same guy who owned the coffee shop, and they lived in a, in a bathroom. They, play, they worked 18 hours a day. They were beaten up by nightclub goons who wanted them to work later and later. They enlisted the help, not financially, but as a friend, of a convicted killer to protect them. Okay, they were so sick from their relationships with women who were working women uh, that not the kind of working women that we know and admire here uh, that they had to get penicillin shots every three days. Oh, they, were, they were pushed out of Hamburg, and everybody talks about Hamburg as being some sort of really glorious time for them. It was not. It was actually a time when you, you might you, you they were really in between the concept of working late teenagers and abused teenagers. They were. They were treated very badly. Two of them were uh, Paul and uh, Pete Best, their great first drummer, was, were accused of setting a fire on a nightclub stage. Uh, uh, George Harrison was deported from the country. He was so embarrassed. John Lennon was accused of stealing a harmonica from a, uh, a music shop, which he did. And uh, they, they had this incredibly uh, difficult, tortuous experience there, but they did play well every day. Got back from there, wanted to quit, and a little concert sort of revived them at the end of December 1960. If you look at the times in this story, the betrayal, the love, the success, the glory, the people that, who were left behind, the 20 or so people who still get together every few weeks in this day and celebrate their birthdays, the people who made them, really helped make them what they were, the forgotten people. Uh, it's quite a story of drama, and it takes place in a gritty town, uh, with religious differences and racial racial tension and anti-Semitism and uh, a real tough post-war period. And these guys did something that was unbelievable. They came out of this from this, this very prejudicial background. Two of the families told them not to sign with Brian Epstein because you don't want to deal with a Jewish businessman. Mm. Okay? And they overcame all this, and they did two very dramatic things that no one knows about today. They got the first black group, a guy named Joe Anker and the Chants, C-H-A-N-T-S, uh, an a cappella doo-wop group, and put them in the cavern for the first time. As teenagers, they did that. They broke the most extraordinary racial barrier. And then later in the United States, in Las Vegas, I told them the Gator Bowl in Jacksonville was going to be segregated, and they refused to play. Mm. And because of their, their tenacity, uh, Two and a half weeks later, the, Jack the Jacksonville Gator Bowl and all the stadiums in the southern part of the United States were suddenly integrated. So, I mean, you know, it's a story of rags to riches. They really weren't in rags except for Ringo. Right? <laughs> the rest I, were middle income. I was, was going to say, it, it, it's a jaw-dropping contrast to the kind of mythical overnight success story that we all think we know. It wasn't any overnight success. That's what, yeah, that's what I mean. And, it's and just... here's, the other, here's the other interesting part. All those songs that we heard, or maybe um, you're probably too young for that, but all those songs we heard in 1964 that were cascaded week after week, and people would say, how can they keep producing these songs? How can they do this? Well, the fact is they were, John and Paul, and to a lesser extent, but a significant extent, George, were writing these songs as early as 1962. And so a lot of Americans would not play the songs. American distributors did not want to touch them. And and finally, when they did release them, they had so many songs stored up that by the April, I think the first week of April, 1964, they were, without a question, 
uh, had five of the top ten songs on the Billboard charts in America. And here's another thing people don't know, that they, they, they were so incredibly mature for people that age. And yeah, you know, the night stuff happened, and I was there, and there were a lot of women, and all of them were over the appropriate age, and three of the Beatles were single. And I'm not going to get into that, <laughs> but I, uh, one of them was married, and he didn't really care at the time. But what I will tell you is that on the tour, they exhibited uh, behaviors that were some behaviors that 40 or 50 year olds couldn't have. For example, their opening acts of their 1964 tour, Jackie DeShannon, who was the Katy Perry of her day, um, uh, the Righteous Brothers, Bill Black Combo, the Exciters, one of the first partially all black girl groups in America. They were all drowned out by the crowds. We want the Beatles. These were these were distinguished musical acts in their own time. And every night they would get on the plane, and after they freshened up, they have a cigarette or a drink. They would walk to the front, and they would make sure these guys were okay. Wow! And they're very. They were just very mature people. Wow! And can and can you imagine a concert goer in those years buy a ticket for that for two or three or four dollars? Well, I'm looking at the prices actually recently. And the top price for the '64 '65 tour was four dollars and ninety-five cents. And the and the, uh, the I believe the ticket in Washington, pretty easy to look it up, was about three bucks. And so, but remember, inflation carries the day. So three dollars and fifty cents or four dollars was a lot of money. Larry Kane is 81 now. He still works as a special contributor to Philadelphia's KYW Radio. You can get a copy of When They Were Boys by Larry Kane by tapping the link in our show notes or by going to our website, heardeverything.com. We may earn an Amazon commission if you make a purchase. And while you're at heardeverything.com, don't miss my 1987 interview with the Beatles' former press agent, Derek Taylor. It wasn't only the music, was it? It was something beyond that. There was something magical about them. That's right. There was something beyond all precedent and experience, and it really hasn't been succeeded. And my 2009 conversation with veteran disc jockey and rock and roll historian Bruce Morrow. There was never any other music in history that youth can identify with and say, this is ours. Rock was. I was sort of the bridge between the adult world and the kids. And of course, we post new episodes of Now I've Heard Everything right here every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. And you can find us everywhere you listen to podcasts. And thank you so much for listening. Next time on Now I've Heard Everything, as we head into Super Bowl weekend, let's go back to my 1987 interview with a member of the then Super Bowl defending New York Giants, Leonard Marshall. You are professional business people when you put that uniform on on Sunday. Once the player forgets that that it is a business, he's no longer involved with it. That's next time on Now I've Heard Everything. I'm Bill Thompson.